The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who, and today we're discussing the first Doctor story, The Space Museum. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to follow uh, The Secrets of Doctor Who on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever podcasts are found, and then write a review of the show in those places. Uh, Spotify now allows reviews or ratings even. Uh, so that helps us not only makes us feel good, but also, most importantly, helps us grow the community of listeners. So that would be greatly appreciated. I also want to tell you about another show on the network you're sure to enjoy called PlayStation Portable. It's an opportunity to stop and pray several times a day with the ch- whole church using the Liturgy of the Hours or Divine Office, as it's sometimes called. It's a podcast that's been around for going on 17 years, I think it is. And it's very successful, very well-received, and you will enjoy praying that with us. We really want to encourage you. So check it out wherever fine podcasts are found, PlayStation Portable, and you can also find it at the SQPN website, sqpn.com. So, Jimmy, we are talking about the Space Museum today, this first Doctor story. Can you give us a recap of what happens? The first Doctor, along with Ian, Barbara, and Vicky, land on the planet Xeros, which is the home of a deserted space museum. But the TARDIS has jumped a time track, and our heroes are both out of phase with their environment and slightly in their own future. To their horror, they discover that they will be captured and turned into exhibits in the museum unless they can find a way to change their own futures. When they get back in sync with time, they discover that the planet Xeros has been conquered by a neighboring race known as the Moroks, who built the museum. The Moroks also exterminated the local population, except for the children, some of whom are now teenagers. The TARDIS crew spends several episodes individually getting captured and then individually escaping again, but in the final episode, they've all been caught, and it looks like they're going to be turned into museum exhibits. Fortunately, before she was caught, Vicky was channeling her inner Shea Wevara and helped the Zeron teenagers launch a revolution against their Morlock overlords. And for once, rebellious teenagers do something constructive and rescue the TARDIS gang. The end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's good. And yeah, it's interesting how. So this st- story begins right from where the previous one ended, which for those who don't remember, was the Crusades. And uh, that ep- that story ended with them sort of freezing in place, the, the TARDIS crew, in the control room. And so that's where we pick up. And they're wearing still wearing their medieval clothing. Mm-hmm. And then they unfreeze, and now they're wearing their modern clothing. Yeah, which is semi-inexplicable. It has, mm-hmm. It's very timey-wimey, apparently. Um, this is a weird story. Yeah. This is not your straightforward, 
let's go somewhere and overthrow somebody's story. I mean, yes, they do both of those things. They do go somewhere and they do overthrow somebody. But it's very unusual, especially with the beginning, Mm -hmm. with this, we're here, we're in this environment, and we're not able, no one can see us. We can see each other, but no one can see us. And our hands go right through physical objects, so we're not leaving footprints, and we're not, you know, we're today we would say they are out of phase. Yeah. That would be the sci-fi language you'd use to express this. So they're out of phase with their environment, and they're slightly in the future, and oh, look, there there are stuffed corpses on display <laughs> in this museum. Yeah. Wow. Let's see if we can change our future which is unusual for Doctor Who in this period, because it has not yet been established that time can be rewritten. And you'll remember, like, when we did the Aztecs and stuff, there's all this stuff, oh, you can't change history, Barbara, no matter how much you want to. And it was heavily implied you couldn't change time. But here, we have a time travel paradox episode that hinges on time can be rewritten. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 important to remember that, like, a lot of the stuff we take for granted in contemporary sci-fi and contemporary Doctor Who, all of this was new back then, and it is interesting to see how they create this idea, this 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 uh, plot device of being out of phase of your own time and trying to change your future, at, at, you know, in the in the mid to early sixties, like this, and. Uh, I, it's very creative. I mean, this whole idea of being slightly out of their time and not affecting the time, and so there's no sound, they can't hear anything, they can't be seen. Uh, they're almost like uh, ghosts to to the people that are around them, and they effectively let us discover this along with the TARDIS crew. You know, the the whole idea of uh, there was one point, uh, Vicky drops a glass of water and it breaks and you know, you know smashes, and then it time reverses or something and it all comes back together and leaps back into her hand why what does that have to do with being out of phase of time they never explain it but it's weird and so uh, just apparently accept it. the law of entropy reverses itself occasionally too <laughs> yeah I, I i like that they don't try to explain it all i like that that they just throw it out there hey look at this weird stuff that happens when mm-hmm. you're out of phase of time and i also love that the explanation for why they're out of phase of time was <laughs> there was a broken gizmo <laughs> in the console that's it no giant yeah, plan. Well, technically, a stuck gizmo, and then as soon as it became unstuck, they reveal at the very end. That's when we snapped back into phase with time. <laughs> and they explain it like a like. I, I like the idea that they explain it by something contemporary to the 1960s that an audience in 2022 might not get. Like, do you ever walk into a room and flip the switch, and then it does the light doesn't turn on, and then does? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Like what? Is, yeah. What is that? I, I am old. I'm old enough to remember that. That there were there were the switches used to be. You could flip the switch and the light wouldn't come on. Yeah, it's, and various devices. Like when I was a boy, wouldn't immediately respond. It, mm. They took a. They took time to warm up. Right. And that was the case, for example, with fluorescent lights back uh-huh. in the day. You'd flip them, and they'd they'd start to flicker a little bit before they'd come full on. Yeah. And there would be some occasionally, I, I don't know if it was bad wiring or what, but incandescent lights would do the same thing. Also, back in the day, you'd turn on, you'd turn on your huge box television 
Oh, yeah. And have to wait like a minute or more before you got a picture. Yeah, it would warm up before the uh, it came up on the screen very slowly. Yeah, I remember that. Um, although we do have a modern version of that where I have the, the smart home devices and I'll sometimes walk into a room and hit the switch and it takes some time for it to you know flow through the internet back to mm-hmm. the controller. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some- I'll, I'll tell my Alexa to turn lights on and off and it'll sometimes take a couple seconds. So <laughs> if we were writing this today, it would be like, Barbara, have you ever walked in a room and told your smart assistant to turn on the lights and it took a couple of seconds for that to happen? <laughs> right. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, so uh, the other thing that's interesting, and you kind of triggered this, is how often in these early episodes they are overthrowing tyrants or, you know, uh, or, vil- you know, supervillains of some sort. But mm-hmm. they, they show up and they overthrow Nero or they overthrow the Morox or, you know, whatever it is, but they keep showing up in the, what's the, the, what's that? The Daleks, right, right. Like they're, they're just keep showing up in overthrowing governments of, of one sort or another. Pleased to meet you, Doctor Who, agent of chaos. (laughs) Right, right, right. I mean, even the second doctor still, still doing that. So it is, he's even more so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is, is that a sixties cultural thing? The, because there was a lot of, in the 60s, especially in the British Empire, colonies overthrowing the, the uh, British colonial powers. I, I think they still pretty much do it a lot on Doctor Who. When I mean, it, they, they, I think they've built out their toolkit a little bit, but there's mm-hmm. always a villain. Yes. And the villain always gets overthrown. It's just a question of what is the villain in control of. True, true. They've, made, they've, they've got a little more variety in villain, I guess. It's not just well, a dictator. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to. Well, yeah. It, from a certain point of view, um, I don't know that we. I, I think that one of the things that the show has not done well lately is explore environments. It it's, it hasn't been big on world building. Mm. Of we're going to go somewhere and we're going to learn about some alien culture and and the planet they live on and everything like that. And so we haven't had too many planetary tyrants to overthrow. Instead, they'll grab people from here and there, but they're not introducing us like they were at the beginning. They're not taking us to a totally new place we've never seen before every week. Right, right. Even, you know, the 11th Doctor, they did more of that. You know, when when he first takes Clara off, we talked about this recently, Clara off, and they go to that weird place where they worship the sun mm-hmm. yeah you know planet and it's it's new it's interesting uh, yeah that's true it's not as much in the 13th and even the 12th so i did like this idea of a space museum of spaceships but it's what it turns out it's the morocks have built this museum dedicated to all of their conquests is that really what it well they- you, yeah i guess <laughs> I'm, I'm never really clear on the purpose of the museum other than to be a museum by the way, since this is a museum that this is set in, instead of the usual lots of scenes of running through corridors, we have yes. lots of scenes of strolling through galleries. <laughs> a, a galleries, I mean, it's, a, it's virtually labyrinthine. I mean, it, they get lost in them over and over again. And they're not overly dense in collected items on display. No, no. The, uh, they, they needed to spread out the prop room, the BBC prop room, a little bit. Look, yeah. an internal combustion engine. I, like I know. <laughs> some, some of the props are distinctly identifiable. It's like, oh, there's a car engine they've got. <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've conquered some car engine people. 
yeah, and a, a Dalek that they had on display, which apparently they've conquered some Daleks. And that leads to the um, most famous bit of video from mm-hmm. this, because at one point in episode number two, the the doctor is hiding inside the Dalek shell, and then he opens the lid at the top of the Dalek shell and peeks out and kind of smirks and chuckles to himself. Yes. And, and that piece of video, the doctor hiding inside a Dalek, has become famous. What you don't get, though, from just seeing that clip is the context. And the context makes it so much more fascinating. Because with just that clip, you would suppose that here we've got William Hartnell. His health is not great. He's, he, he's not the action man. That's Ian's job. Yep. And so he's hiding in a Dalek to escape some danger and is pleased with himself for having successfully hidden. That's what you would guess just by looking at the clip. But in fact, the doctor, when you see this in context, what leads up to that is the doctor has been captured by the rebellious teenagers. He was just grabbed from behind. He didn't have a chance. And then two of the rebellious teenager, and he, he falls to the ground and pretends to be unconscious. Mm-hmm. So that leads to two of the rebellious teenagers going off to get something to revive him while leaving the third rebellious teenager behind to guard him. And when the two get back, they find the third teenager still there, laying on the ground, tied up and gagged, <laughs> and the doctor is gone. And, and they untie their friend and say, what happened? Did the, did the old guy do this to you? And he's like, I don't know. I was like, it happened from behind. And I just was struck and on the ground, and now I'm tied up, and I was gagged. <laughs> and I don't know anything about this. And so, and so then they leave because the doctor's not there. And then the doctor emerges from the Dalek shell and is pleased, and he's not pleased at having hidden. He's pleased that he is such, and I don't have the word for it for a family-friendly show, <laughs> but he is such a prodigious warrior that he, I mean, this, all, this whole thing after he got captured from behind, it was a ruse. He, was, he pretended to be unconscious in order to get rid of the other two, and then he waited until the third one had his back turned to him, and then, not not like the frail little old man you'd expect, he smacks the guy <laughs> and ties him up and bl- and gags him without even being seen, and then hides in the Dalek. <laughs> and so this is like, wow, action first doctor. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I love that. That's great. <laughs> Just imagining uh, William Hartnell <laughs> overpowering a teenager. <laughs> You know, uh, the teens, the, one of the teens, I forget the, the, which one it was. The, I mean, it was the oh, leader, and I don't remember his name uh, yet. Um, but is a young Jeremy Bullock, who la- would lo- later go on to be Boba Fett in Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Uh, uh, so. That explains why I didn't recognize him. <laughs> right. Uh, the, it's, um, it, uh, I, in my uh, efforts to identify all the Star Wars actors who show up in, in Doctor Who, that's uh, another one. So, uh, yeah, and the other thing, when they first encounter the Dalek shell, Vicky says, oh, that looks so cute. (laughs) And (laughs) I've read about them in history books, and it looks friendly, I think is is the way she describes it. And it's kind of funny that, 
Yeah, it's isn't it weird how something that we experience can be so scary and menacing, but in hundreds of years, it's, you know, whatever, it's, you know, or even maybe not even necessarily that long, but for Vicky, it's been hundreds of years. It looks yeah, friendly. Because she, she's from the 25th century. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh so it they're kind of aghast at her you know thinking it uh nothing of the daleks whereas their very first-hand experience of them is well, much different uh, yeah and this is also when dalek mania was sweeping england the daleks had become in, incredibly popular and you know there were dalek toys and games and kids would have Dal- poorly made dalek christmas costume or halloween costumes they would wear and there was a novelty record, uh, uh, you know, about Daleks and Christmas and, mm-hmm. um, and, and also right at the same time they were filming the Space Museum, they were also filming the first of the Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies, which was a remake of the original Dalek story. Right, right. One of these days we're going to have to watch those and, and talk about them on the show. That would be fun. Yeah, they're really good. They're, and they're, they're a lot of fun. Yeah, they're available on BritBox if you have the, a BritBox subscription. They're there. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, in the second one, you get to see a... It's the same actor. He's not playing the same character, but you get to see a young Wilfred Mott yes. as <laughs> as a companion of the Doctor. That That is awesome. One of my favorite char- uh, characters. Um, so they... yeah. And I thought the Daleks would play a role in this. You know, you don't show a Dalek without them, you know, at least in Modern Who, without them being a part of the plot. Turns out they they weren't. Although, the, at the very end, the next First Doctor story is going to be a Dalek story, apparently, because they, they do that little yeah. cliffhanger at the end. The next um, one is The Chase. Yes. Which which is basically the Daleks also have time travel technology and they chase the Doctor and crew through time. Oh, cool! That should be fun. So they eventually in the yeah. in this museum Especially they finally when Frankenstein and Dracula appear. Oh wow! <laughs> so time and literature. <laughs> no, no, we don't really get to literature until the second Doctor story, the Mind Robber. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, then I'll, I'll they wait. literally go to the land of fiction. That should be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when they eventually find the TARDIS in the museum, it looks really old, and they can't touch it either, and that's when they see themselves in the glass cases. So the the implication is they are dead and stuffed in these cases, right? I mean, that's, that's yeah. they're not just in suspended animation. No, they uh, they they make that explicit in episodes three and four, where they have they have captured the doctor and they're putting him through a preparation process, and they make it explicit that this basically kills you, and mm. you're once you begin the preparation, you're you're virtually dead, and you will be dead by the end of the preparation, and there's no known way to reverse it, but Ian makes them reverse it anyway, <laughs> of course. Uh, it it's uh, reminiscent of Vincent Price's Wax Museum, which was yeah <laughs> so creepy when I was a kid. <laughs> well, and so is the early on before we even know that. I mean, they're standing there looking at themselves, you know, apparently dead or frozen in the cases. And the doctor says, "Unless unless we stop this, that's how we're all going to end up." And it's yeah. an effectively creepy moment. I can I can imagine kids, you know, getting a little freaked out by that. It's very. Uh, gothic there um oh by the way we should talk about the um the makeup design mm-hmm. in this because they're trying to make 
the Morocks and the Zerons look non-human. Right. And the way they do that is the uh, the Morocks have the most sharp widow's peaks <laughs> ever. <laughs> they, I mean, it's like it's like Wolverine or Timberwolf on steroids. I was going to say even the, more than Eddie and the Munsters. <laughs> yeah, more than Eddie. They, they, the the widow's peaks in the center of their forehead come down almost to their eyebrows. It all right. they almost meet their eyebrows, and then the rest of their hair is kind of upswept. And so, okay, that's that's an interesting makeup choice. Yep, it does make them look different. At no stage of life do humans' hair grow that far down to in the center of their forehead. <laughs> right. Then the for and for the Zerons, uh, they are they tend to be blonde, and they've got these sort of double eyebrows. Yeah, and it's hard to tell on because of the you know 1960s video quality. Well, exactly what they were trying to do. What's clear about what they were trying to do is they have a set of eyebrows like an inch above where their regular eyebrows would be. Mm-hmm. And so there, you have these curved eyebrow arcs that are, have been glued onto their foreheads about an inch above their real eyebrows. And I'm not clear on, did they shave the original eyebrows and then use mascara or something to color the space above their eyes? Or did they leave the original eyebrows there and they're just hard to see. But in some shots, it looks like they have these forking eyebrows with yeah. one arc in the normal place and a second arc ab- about an inch above the normal eyebrows. Right. So and- it looks like double eyebrows, but maybe it's meant to be just displaced eyebrows with eye shade. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and or they just didn't do a very good job of covering up the eyebrows of the uh, young actors that they were using or... Something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, the, yeah, and the Morocks are all in white, and, and, and the Zerons are black. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah. yeah. And they also may have used different uh, makeup for different actors um, in order to save money. So if you're a prominent actor, you might get the full treatment. But if you're just a background Zeron, you get the double eyebrows. <laughs> right, right. That's probably it. Which is uh, similar. I mean, the original Star Trek, which is made a couple years after this, would do that with Klingons because they had, like, three dollars worth of makeup budget per klingon and so okay we're gonna spend the money on core and kang and the klingon leader and so forth and the others not so much you just get some dirt rubbed on your skin (laughs) you get to be swarthy um there is a so the 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 morocks we get this explanation so lobos is the governor of this planet in the morocco empire and like you said it has been conquered by the Morocks, uh, basically destroyed. The planet is basically dead. There's no life on the planet at all. Uh, all of the adults have been killed. The ki- the kids have been enslaved. Again, very grim. This is pretty grim mm-hmm. for kids programming uh, yeah. even today. So uh, and uh, so the doctor has been captured and he gets interrogated by Lobos, uh, who tells oh. him that. Oh, the, the interrogation yeah. scene is awesome. It's funny. Because the, the doctor has been sat in this chair or sits in this chair that will read his mind and transmit a mental image of what he's thinking onto a TV screen that Lobos can see. Yes. And so he's like, where are your friends? 
and the doctor won't answer him. But Lawboss turns his TV around and says, see, they're right here in this location. I can see the image in your mind. And of course, it's not the actual location of them. It's just the last location the doctor saw them before he was captured. So that doesn't help the Morocks at all. But as the interrogation continues, the doctor, now that he knows it, the machine is reading his mind, he just feeds it nonsense images. <laughs> yes. So when um, when when Lobos says, how did you get here to, <laughs> to, to Zeron? Yes. An image of a penny farthing bicycle comes up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and where did you come from? And the doctor imagines some stock footage of a rock in the ocean with a bunch of walruses careening off of it. <laughs> was, and who are so those? Weird. You're not an, those are aquatic creatures. Oh, they're just some old friends of mine. But you're not an aquatic creature. Oh, I'm not. <laughs> Am I? Um, well, then, then it he, shows an image of him dressed in an Edwardian bathing costume with yes. a straw boater on his head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that that, that's a lot of fun. Yes, that is good. Yeah, the doctor has a lot of fun in this one, right up till where they're trying to kill him. But, well, uh, in, including the part where he, we don't, including the fun we don't even see because the reason he's not in episode three is because William Hartnell was on vacation that week. So they arranged for him to be captured and processed while, uh, while he was on vacation. (laughs) That's what it is. Okay. So, uh, uh, yeah. So Lobos explains that the museum was created by the Morak empire on this planet that they conquered and they don't care about anymore, but uh, as a way to, to tabulate or to display all of their conquests but mm-hmm. galactic conquests are a thing of the past, not as popular anymore, and life is now purely a thing to enjoy, as he says, and so nobody bothers coming anymore. Yeah, I had a thought about that. If you want more, because he seems pretty depressed at how, <laughs> oh, I've got another 2,000 days I've got to stay here at this museum no one comes to. And it's like, okay, dude, if you want more people to come to your museum, how about not capturing, killing, and stuffing your patrons, okay? (laughs) That might increase attendance. If word got out that this is a museum that does not capture, kill, and stuff its patrons, more patrons might actually come. (laughs) Right, right, yes. (laughs) Your acquisitions uh, strategy needs to be changed a little bit. (laughs) So, uh, I did like, so I, I compared the uh museum to the labyrinth earlier and so at one point oh yeah the, in they, order to find their way out ian and barbara and vicky come up with a plan to leave tie a string to an exhibit and walk so they just stop walking in circles and walk but they don't have string on them so what do they do they sacrifice barbara's cardigan of course poor barbara <laughs> they like he, he basically ian just basically takes it from her and he starts to like rip at it She's like, what are you doing uh oh we need some some thread to well, just ask. <laughs> so yeah. she's, she has to get a you know, a, and, and a then needle. he tries biting it to to un, unravel it, and that doesn't do any good. And so no. she's like, "Here, give it to me. Do you have a penknife?" <laughs> yeah. And and Barbara starts the unraveling process. Yeah, and that's By the way, uh, yeah. speaking of Ian, he you know he's kind of rash in just grabbing the cardigan off Barbara's back, but that is far from the worst rashness Ian displays fairly early on after they're re-in-sync with time and so now they're under physical threat they decide to try to arm themselves by by holding up a fish he had, 
Ian has Barbara and Vicky lift a fish tank mm-hmm. display so he can get the ray gun out from under the fish tank. And it's clear that's a fish tank. That's all yes. that is. <laughs> and and then as soon as he has the ray gun, it's like a rifle style ray gun. He displays the worst gun safety ever. (laughs) Not only does he point it at, I mean, not only does he let the the trajectory of the muzzle cross Barbara and Vicky, you know, which you you see people do casually who don't really know how to handle a gun. They're not Mm -hmm. pointing it at someone. They're just letting the the trajectory of the muzzle cross another human person so that if it went off at that moment they would be hit and that's yes. bad gun safety right there Very what bad. is unimaginably bad gun safety is deliberately pointing the ray gun at Barbara and at Vicky and making ah noises <laughs> that is very okay bad. that's really horrendously bad And then the doctor comes up and surprises him, and he wheels around and in surprise and tells the doctor as if the doctor did something wrong by surprising him while he was brandishing a ray gun. He he tells the doctor, "I could have shot a hole in you," and I'm going, "No, duh! You could have shot a hole, multiple holes in Barbara and Vicky just now. Take a gun safety class, idiot!" (laughs) Right, right. I. I just had my my Cub Scouts at a at an event over the weekend, and they had air you know BB guns. And the range master asked the kids, "What's the first rule of safety? Always point the 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 muzzle downrange and never at anybody." I'm like, even ten year olds know this <laughs> this this basic element yeah. of safety. And the second rule is never put your finger on the trigger until you're ready to pull it. Yes, it, you know. So, um, well, now this may be much more obvious to us here in America than it yes. is to our friends in England, but wow, is that bad gun safe? <laughs> right, right. Uh, I was so- just this this weekend. I was collecting some um, some headlines for use in future mysterious headlines on Mysterious World, and uh-huh. one of them is going to be introduced with like, and good news for our American listeners: your guns will work in space. <laughs> well, that's good that's good yeah uh, well i always wonder that yeah uh well we they, can talk about they, they, they will you world. need to modify them a bit to adjust for space but mm-hmm. they the basic functionality will work the uh apple tv plus series for all mankind which is an alt uh, yeah history, history uh has some marines on the moon with uh modified m16s mm-hmm. which which is actually based on plans that uh, the U.S. government drew up. This is something that we'll talk about in a future episode. Mm-hmm. But back during the Cold War, okay, Anakin, you've lost. I have the high ground. <laughs> yes. And there was this uh, plan to set up military moon bases. Mm-hmm. And it was a concern that the Soviets would then also set up military moon bases and we'd have a war on the moon. And so we needed to have weapons that would work that were designed for that environment. And so they had plans for modified guns that our U.S. space marines could use up on the moon against those evil, godless, commie Soviet space marines. (laughs) And there are plans for all this, and they're declassified, and and we're going to talk about them at some point in the future. Oh, man, I can't wait for that one. That, That sounds like fun. So back to our uh, revolution. Uh, so Ian gets 
it gets caught by the Morocks and then gets free, and we'll talk about that in a second, I guess. But uh, Vicky gets caught by the rebels, the teens, the rebellious teens. Barbara gets locked in a closet. <laughs> and Vicky, like you mentioned in the recap, it becomes uh, a, a revolutionary. She leads oh, wow. the, the teens to the revolution. She like, just throws herself into the role. <laughs> so these Xeros kids have been dreaming and planning a revolution, but won't take action. They're just too timid to to do anything and... They're, they're, whenever they've done something in the past, there's been reprisals, and it's up to Vicky to to just prod them, prod them, prod them into war. I mean, she really well, is she, warmongers them. She does, and she also uses what I guess is her 25th century knowledge of computers to help them out, because the reason, the chief obstacle stopping them from rebelling is, in a big way, I mean, they've been doing little things that are just annoyances, basically. But mm-hmm. the thing that stops them from mounting a full-scale rebellion is they don't have any weapons. And the weapons, there is an armory that the Moroks have, but in order to get into the armory, you have to answer, you have to kind of be put under a, a, a truth ray. They don't actually invoke that concept, but basically you have to answer questions for a computer, and you not only have to be authorized to um to uh access the 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 weapons locker you also have to tell the truth so if you're lying and saying oh yes i'm authorized well then it's going to know you're not you're lying and so you're not going to get access and they haven't found a way to beat that system so vicky insists that they go there and she has she has one of the guys you know step into the machines you know, it's like you break a light beam and it activates. And she has a guy do- start answering the question so she can see how it works. And then she reprograms it so that all you need to do is tell truthful answers. You don't need to actually be authorized. And so then she steps in the beam. It's like, what is your name? I'm Vicki Pallister. Do you, are you authorized? No, I'm not. Okay, here's the weapons. Yeah. <laughs> and I was I was waiting for it to say, "What is your favorite color? What is yeah. your quest? <laughs> what Blue, is the average no, airspeed of a sparrow?" <laughs> Monty Python Holy Grail reference, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, that. Yeah, she instead of defeating the truth detecting ray, she changes the questions that she so she can answer them yeah, truthfully. Yeah, I bet she'd cheat on the Kobayashi Maru too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very kirking in of her. But but one of the things that I like about this is how robust they are about mm-hmm. okay, Morocks bad, Xerons are in the right, overthrowing the Morocks is totally the correct thing to do and violence is okay to use it and so we're going to get guns and kill people and they right. do. Oh, yeah. And they, they kill lots of people. Right. And, I mean, for their TV budget, they kill lots of people. <laughs> yes. And and there's no hand-wringing, and there's no scoldy lectures from the doctor or anybody else. It's just, yeah, these people are evil, and in the way to deal with them that we had available was to kill them, and so that was justified, and now they're dead, and we're happy. I wonder, though, uh, does the Mor- is the Morak Empire so corrupt and ancient that uh, they can't r- uh, come back? Yeah, and- that's the, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the head Morak guy says it's, it's not interested in conquest anymore. But they do, you know, gesture in this direction because at the end, the teenagers are, you know, how it's like at the end of a rock concert. They want to see guitars <laughs> smashed. So they're dismantling the Space Museum, yeah, which has all this conquest-related stuff in it. 
and 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 they're the teenagers are like well yeah but see we don't want to make war and and so we're getting rid of all this stuff and the doctor's like you might want to just hang on to some of this stuff and i'm going <laughs> yeah because you said the morak empire homeworld is just three light years from here yeah so yeah. <laughs> you you've just led a rebellion and a bunch of them have apparently escaped back to their home planet because you didn't kill all of them i didn't get that message right and so they might mount a punitive expedition in retaliation so don't yeah. be too quick to destroy all that weaponry you've got. Yeah. Oh, maybe. And uh, yeah. another thing that just was driving me nuts through a few episodes of this, whenever Ian and the gang or the rebels knock somebody out, uh-huh. they just leave their gun laying there <laughs> right. or in its holster. It's like, never leave your enemies with their guns. Always take the guns. And that bites them. Comes yeah. back to bite him a couple of times. Yeah, it's like okay, this is the unwritten rule of gun safety: take your right. enemy's guns away from him. Yeah, yeah. And to kind of close the loop on the Vicky thing, I mean, the reason she started the revolution was because, and she comes out and says it is this was her idea for preventing that future where they end up as museum exhibits. Like, if we could start mm -hmm. a revolution, a successful revolution. That will shut down the museum, and they won't have any reason to put us in it anymore. Although, there's no guarantee that the Xeroshians wouldn't want to continue the museum, but probably not. Well, but, and her plan worked. She started yes. the revolution, and that's what saved them in the end. Right. They are, they are, they, Vicky, it was Vicky who basically saved the day, in, uh, overall, in this case. Ah, uh, uh, I meant, yeah. Bad boy. That's a word, a term I could use on a fam family-friendly show, <laughs> show to indicate the doctor's yes. martial prowess. He was, yes. He's such a bad boy, he can take out this teenager <laughs> without the teenager even understanding what's happening. Right. He must have, this could be evidence that he had already learned Venusian Aikido by his first incan incarnation. That's right, that's right. Yeah, so Ian was briefly captured, then got away, uh, and ended up capturing... <laughs> this hapless Morok security guard. This guy is just cannot get, catch a break. Uh, he's having and, a bad day. Uh, he's having a real <laughs> bad day. And he basically manipulates this guy into getting into the governor's office and getting into the uh, embalming facility, or whatever you want to call it, where they were uh, converting the doctor into an exhibit. And uh, the statuification process, I think is uh, the, what Lobos calls it. Mm. And uh, Ian demands reverse this pro process that you says can't be reversed that you say can't be reversed uh which is very like how am i supposed to do that roger just <laughs> yeah. do it Woof. <laughs> it reminds me of politicians who pass laws for that that require a certain technology that doesn't exist and they're like well you're smart people just invent it oh okay <laughs> sure why not and so, so he, he he makes him do it and uh he says and remember I'll be watching you very carefully, so don't try any tricks. And Lobos says, <laughs> there are no tricks in science, only facts, which I just... Uh, there are tricks, too. <laughs> there are tricks in science, CF, yes. Piltdown Man. <laughs> right, right. Uh, CF, the current pandemic. <laughs> this only facts. Uh, so that was, um, that was really uh, humorous to see. So, oh, by uh, the way, speaking of science, we get a, an early doctor name drop, because he didn't do that as much in in 
in the early days. I mean, mm-hmm. Matt Smith is name dropping all over the place, but yeah. but uh, and recent doctors have a tendency to. But uh, but here we have the doctor talking about how steam coming from a tea kettle led to a great invention, and so he's thinking of steam power, and he says. I was with him when, oh, what was that young man's name? And Barbara steps in with James Watt. <laughs> right. Well, doesn't <laughs> she, the, I love how she's kind of annoyed that yeah. she's having, she's, he's name dropping James Watt and she has to give him the name. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Does, uh, isn't that a six doctor story where he actually sees James Watt? What, didn't we talk about that one recently? What you, with the, uh, uh, uh that's, uh, is it George Stevenson? It's Oh, it's Stevenson. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh that's the railroad one. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh yeah. Uh that's funny. So uh all right, so the the in the yeah. end There's 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 a great bit in uh uh-huh. in uh Sycorax Rocks's song for the Seventh Doctor which is based it's a it's a parody of One Night in Bangkok. Yes. And there's a there's a moment where they're showing imagery from that. That's from the second of the Ronnie, uh, second of the Ron, or first of the Ronnie stories. Yeah. And so she's in like the the she's in George Stevenson's time, and she's extracting life energy from miners or something. And, right. And 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 the the locals are up in arms. And so, uh, the in Sycorax Rocks, uh, the line is like, uh, th- oh, I can't remember the initial hook, but it's like, they're violent, they're causing a commotion, gotta help George Stevenson do the locomotion. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> One of the adventures of the railroad. Yeah. yeah. That, that's good. So, in the end, the doctor says, uh, you know, their problem was because of a part of the TARDIS that didn't complete the materialization. Correctly, and until it clicked into place, they hadn't actually arrived on the planet, although they sort of had. So, and then, and then we get this um, cliffhanger scene of Daleks, uh, our greatest enemies have left the planet, Zeros, and then the chase is on, as you said. Yeah. So, a couple little minor things before we go. One of the traps of writing an episode like this is filling time by constant dithering and second guessing about whether you're, what you're doing is the right thing or whether it's the wrong thing that will actually bring about the undesirable future you've seen. Mm-hmm. And this is this is such it's such a trope. I mean, you see it every time you have a plot like this in science fiction. There's a next generation episode where they've gotten evidence that at some point in their very near future, they're going to do something that will cause the ship to blow up. Yeah. And so it's like, do we go back or do we go ahead? Maybe going back is what causes us to do the thing that results in us blowing up, or maybe going forward is, and we got this hand-wringing scene. And it turns out Worf was right. Just listen to Worf and you would have been okay. <laughs> but we've got a lot of that same hand-wringing in these episodes. Now, overall, I like this story. This is a fun story. I it's 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 not amazing, but it's it's pleasant. It's well paced mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, but it does have more of the hand wringing than it should, and that's it's understandable because if we were in a situation where we had actually glimpsed our future and it was undesirable and we wanted to change it, it would be reasonable to have a conversation about. So, what's our best course? 
to change this. And we would want to watch out for monkey's paw type situations where in trying to change it, we actually make it happen. And so it's legitimate to have a brief discussion of that once the characters realize they're in this situation. But don't keep bringing it up. Right. right. You know, um, because that's just that's that's just unhelpful. I mean, maybe it was more helpful when people were viewing this weekly and they needed a reminder of the basic situation. But it comes off as just you're just filling time with paint by numbers, writing and hand wringing. Yeah. Yeah. Another couple little things before we end. So the doctor gets a souvenir from the Space Museum, and he's coy about what it is, but we will see it in the chase. It's a space-time visualizer, which means it's a time television that you can tune in to different periods in history and see what's going on, which would be a really useful tool to have aboard the TARDIS, so we'll see it used once and never again. Also, early on, once they once when they're first coming into the um, to the space museum, Vicky is about to get to sneeze, and Barbara puts her finger under Vicky's nose to stifle the sneeze, mm. which it does. And then, as soon, after she takes it away, Vicky sneezes anyway. And I thought to myself, because I've seen this in a million cartoons yep. and TV shows, and it's like. Does that finger under does that ever work to to put your finger under someone's nose? So I looked it up. Mm-hmm. And the answer is actually yeah. Now, not the way you see it on television where an actor just puts it like right on their lip. Under, uh, on yeah. their lip. What yeah. you've got to do is jam it up into the nose itself and mm-hmm. that will trigger a counter reflex that will I mean not you don't put it up one of the nostrils, but you Push against the, your nose. You push yeah. against the bridge of the nose, and it will cause a trigger reflex that can temporarily stifle the sneeze, hmm. but it will only last a little bit, and then you, and so t- Barbara takes her finger away, and here comes the <laughs> sneeze. If you get a sneeze, you get a sneeze. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you don't see that as often, again, in, in contemporary uh, pro- oh, that was the thing back in the day. That happened mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, that and Pepper making people sneeze. That was the other thing, the other yeah. side of that. And Alan oh. making their head shrink. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there were a lot of weird concepts that were very prevalent in TV, cartoons, regular TV, that just never come up anymore. It's just they're done. They don't do that anymore. It's kind of funny. All right, so uh, I think that about does it. So let's thank uh, our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Elizabeth E., Kathy L., Linda N., Janet M., and Eric E. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who in all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So we'd love to hear what you think of the Space Museum. You can comment on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing Back to the Twelfth Doctor. We're doing Into the Dalek, which is uh, seems appropriate since the first Doctor went into the Dalek this time. Anyway, until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me in sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, and remember, time, like space, although a dimension in itself, also has dimensions of its own. 
Thank you. I'm sorry. I, I think I slipped a time track there. <laughs> that was your line. <laughs> that was my line. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, there are no tricks in science, only facts. I'm a scientist, Ranger Brad. I don't believe in anything. Ha, 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 ha.